0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Peking Oliver, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Arunab Ghosh, an associate professor of modern Chinese history at Harvard University, and we'll be discussing his fantastic new book, Making It Count, Statistics and Statecraft in the Early People's Republic of China. Arunab, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jude. Thank you for having me.
0: So before we dive into the, the guts of this book, which is a really fascinating exploration of the development of uh, statistical capabilities and methodologies in the PRC, I wanted to ask a more general question for those of us amateurs here, which is, what is the connection between statistics and statecraft? And here I'm just kind of channeling what little I know of you know, James Scott's work on seeing like a state, which is the thrust behind this question. But In a more abstract sense, why do political regimes or states invest in statistical capabilities? What problems are they trying to solve by counting?
1: So this is a great question, Jude, uh, and it, it goes back actually in some ways to the very creation of states themselves. So what Scott is doing is talking much more about the early modern and modern era. But if you go back and look into antiquity, states have been collecting data pretty much since the point of creation. And the logic for them was perhaps much narrower in, in the ancient past, which really was to figure out how much land do we control and, you know, what is the number of people on that land? Because what we really need to do is to tax them. And we need to be able to use human labor, corvee labor, to carry out all kinds of things, whether it's an infrastructure, projects, or if we are going to fight, then we need to man an army. So the interest in the state's, the state's interest in collecting statistical data sort of goes back all the way to the early creation of the state itself. What's interesting, though, is in how the ability to collect this data and the ways in which the imagination of what this data might be used to do has changed over time. And I think in this, even more than Scott, someone like Charles Tilly, who worked on the creation of European states in the 13th, 14th centuries onwards, has been hugely influential also because he spoke about how there was a recognition, partly driven by interstate competition in Europe, that you could use statistical data to enhance state capacity. So the better data you have, the more effective your tax collection might be, the more effectively you might be able to recruit for the army or to recruit labor for different kinds of projects. So there was sort of a recognition that statistics can become this very powerful tool. But of course, states are also collecting data historically for about all kinds of other things that are related to production. And as the term suggests, the state of affairs, as it were. So rainfall, what kind of agricultural yield has there been, things like that. So these have been interests that the state has had, I think, from the very beginning. The other interesting thing that is more in line with the period that Scott is talking about is how what is essentially a descriptive mode of collecting data, you're collecting data that just sort of tries to give you a sense of, well, what was yield last year, which is a, you know a stock, to the intersection with more advanced forms of mathematical sciences that allow the power of statistics to sort of experience a quantum leap. And this really has happened in the past few centuries. So then you start seeing a real expansion in the ways in which statistics becomes absolutely fundamental to governance. And now you have this, point. I mean, the U.S. is a good example of this in spite of perhaps the current administration, but the U.S. is perhaps the most data-rich and data-informed policy-making society in the world today. And you see this in terms of the ways in which not just the state, but various institutions across uh, private, public sector, and then non-governmental are in, engaged in collecting data, engaging with data to inform public discourse. So there's a long trajectory in which you can see essentially a degree of both specialization, but also massive expansion in what statistics can help you do.
0: Just again, looking back over this this broad course of history, do we see any difference in methodologies developed for, and I don't know if this demarcation exists or not, but for statistics developed for maintaining power and statistics developed for improving governance? Now, maybe they overlap, but is there any daylight between them, both in terms of what types of statistical analysis you're doing and also methodologies?
1: Off the top of my head, I can't see a very strong distinction between power and governance per se. I think there's more of a commingling there or more fluidity, I guess, between those two purposes. But one thing that is interesting, and this has been pointed out by historians of, of statistics and mathematics and social sciences, is this what happens in the primarily 18th and 19th centuries, where you have essentially two parallel ways of thinking about numbers and, and how they relate to society that begin to intersect. So one is what we've been talking about, which is the state's interest in collecting data, which has a long history. But then there's also people who are, you can think of in, you know, essentially mathematicians, people interested in all kinds of sort of numerical analysis who have been thinking about statistics from a more theoretical, more conceptual perspective. And a good example of this is to look at the history of probability and the way in which people have been interested in games of chance. So there's a, there's a sort of social element to this also, right? You're interested in, well, you, you're gambling or you're playing other kinds of sort of games where there is chance involved. How do you formalize those games, the knowledge about those games? Well, our sense is that these two kinds of engagements with numerical thinking operated largely along parallel tracks and did not intersect till about the 18th and 19th centuries, where you start seeing a lot of these innovations that are happening in the conceptual realm, sort of mathematics conceptually understood, that sort of seep into statecraft. And probability theory is perhaps the marker of this transition, where you start accepting that, you, you know, we can count in ways where we don't actually have to have an accurate answer, but we have to have an answer that we have a sense of the range of accuracy that we have. So we have a confidence that what we are counting lies between, you know, it's this number plus or minus one or plus or minus two. And that is a very powerful transition that happens. And that's where you see this sort of intersection. So methodologically, that leads to a flowering of statistical techniques from purely just going out and counting.
0: One of the things we'll talk about very shortly is, is there such a thing as kind of Maoist statistics or socialist statistics? Again, casting our eye to the kind of the pre-modern era, if the more modern area of statistical analysis was seeing a a commingling or at least um, statistical analysis drawing on a kind of a a common wellspring of developed methodologies, prior to that period, did you see radically different methodologies developed kind of indigenous to to various countries, did kind of pre-modern China have its own unique indigenous statistical methodology that was different from, say, what was happening in Scotland?
1: The specific practices may have been different, but the broad sort of conceptual underpinnings were, I think, very similar in that we need to understand and collect data. So take the example of something as regular as rainfall, which is, you know, a state would be interested in getting a sense of rainfall data because in the pre-modern world, Agriculture is the source of income and and wealth. So you you would devise perhaps different ways of uh, reporting this data, whether you'd have someone maybe send you just uh, an annual report. You know, this could be impressionistic or there's someone who's maintaining actually regular tables. But the idea that you're collecting data and it's sort of just something out there that you can represent accurately and summarize That, I think, is fairly common across the board. And into the 19th century and into the early 20th century, actually, the idea of statistics as a discipline, as a science that evolves, is really that it's universal, that it's a set of techniques, it's an approach to counting that can be applied to pretty much any sphere that you can think of, whether it's the social sphere, whether it's, you know, you're working in the natural sciences, whether you're doing research in in space. The idea is that these are techniques that apply universally. And partly what you're alluding to with the question about Maoist statistics or socialist statistics is that... there was a rejection of this universalist claim. There was sort of a very strong argument made in uh, starting in the 1930s, but it really gets formalized in the early 1950s, first in the Soviet Union, but then it has a huge impact in in China, which is to say that statistics is not a universal science. It is not a science that can be applied willy-nilly across whatever you're interested in studying. What you study, the object of analysis, actually fundamentally determines the nature of statistical methods and the very definition of statistics. It really hinges on the understanding and place of probability what role does probability have in statistical analysis? Well, even before statistical analysis, what role does it have in statistical data collection to begin with?
0: As I'm hearing you talk about probability in the history of statistical methodology, you're a historian of modern China. So I just want to ask a more of a a biographical question, which is, as we start to enter into the the research for this book, I, I wanted to get a better sense of what brought you to this specific topic that resulted in the book and what sort of questions, what big nagging questions did you want to answer when, when you began this research?
1: I didn't begin research on the book on which which was earlier you know which is based on my dissertation. so I didn't begin research on the dissertation with this specific question in mind. But the reason for that is itself, I think somewhat telling because I had much like I think everyone else completely internalized, what I described earlier, the fact that we take statistics as a universal science, we don't really re- regard the kinds of debates and the kinds of tensions that I discovered as being part of its history, or if it, if it was a part of its history, not in the 20th century, perhaps earlier. When I started doing research, I had an interest in the history of data because I, I spent a few years in D.C. in the policy world, working at the Urban Institute, where I'd been working with very large data sets. What, what were very large data sets in the early years of the 21st century, which now would perhaps not be considered very large? And sort of the the data-rich environment of the policy-making world in D.C. had been intriguing to me, especially in light of thinking about it in terms of sort of what are the historical origins of this kind of community. That intersected then with my interest in Chinese history. But my goal initially when I started doing research was really not to focus on statistics itself, but to look at the 1953 census of China, which was China's first modern census, which shocked a lot of observers, a lot of China hands, because The final number that was declared was significantly higher than sort of the received wisdom of what China's population in in the early 1950s ought to be. People thought it should be around 450 million. The number eventually declared was almost 600 million. So there's a huge discrepancy. And I got interested in this and I thought maybe I'll use the the census as a case study of a a large statistical enterprise. And then through that, explore all kinds of questions about state and society in, in the early PRC. It's in the archives that I discovered that actually there's not as much information on the census itself and you know that's a separate question we can go get into if there's time but Instead, there's, there are all these debates, there's a lot of hand-wringing about this question of well, what is statistics, is it a social science, is it a natural science, and what are the stakes of defining it as a natural science or as a social science. And that slowly reading these materials, encountering more and more of these materials, just sort of sucked me into this much more in some ways, what you can think of as a much more meta question, which has to do with sort of the, the nature, of, nature of statistical knowledge itself, undergirding our assumptions about the nature of the world itself, like what, what kinds of laws operate in what areas of the world and so on. It was an iterative process of discovering, going in with what I thought was an interesting question, and then discovering, actually, in my opinion, at least, a much more interesting and much more fundamental question that then exposes all sorts of new perspectives, or it brings new perspectives to this post-World War II moment, whether we think of it in terms of knowledge creation, systems of governance, statecraft, history of data, and of course, the Cold War also. So all of these then become really relevant.
0: When I first reached out to you to to do this podcast, the section of the book that I was most interested in is much less meta, but still nonetheless epistemological, which is on the connection between, or or the influence of ideology on statistical methodology, which is what I wanted to look at here today. But can you scene set for us, it's September, 1949, the PRC has not yet been founded. What is the state of statistical methodology, statistical understanding and awareness? In other words, as the, the early PRC is being cobbled together and and it's bringing in officials and they're starting to look out at regime building or state building. What do they know and and where are these tools being drawn from? We're gonna talk in a bit about where they're drawing from external sources, India, Soviet Union, but looking around domestically, are they borrowing officials and uh, both officials and methodologies from the nationalists and the nationalist government, which is now in shambles? Are these old Qing dynasty officials? Just give us a sense of what the state of the statistical enterprise was.
1: In very brief terms, the the state of statistical enterprises, sort of the enterprise was in disarray, much as I think a lot of governance more broadly construed was in disarray uh, in 1949, you're, you're, you know, reaching the end of a four year long civil war, but preceding the civil war has been four decades of political disintegration, civil war, and imperial invasion by the Japanese. So so there hasn't been the kind of centralized government that at least you had in the Qing that you have after 1949 again. So that kind of fractured nature of political rule during the Republican uh, era, so 1912 to 1949, made it very difficult to build statistical capacity, which is not to say that there wasn't a tremendous degree of interest in building statistical capacity, because it was recognized by actually Qing reformers. So in the 1890s and the first decade of the 20th century, there was an attempt to to rejig what was a very long tradition of statistical data collection to try and adapt it to the needs of a, of a modern state. And then this was continued by, by different repub- Republican governments after 1912. But in terms of the state's capacity, it continued to be a, a massive challenge to actually build the kind of grassroots capacity to understand what is going on in the agricultural sector, in industry, in other walks of life, so that policy can be informed. But what's interesting is that at the same time that the state's capacity shrinks tremendously, you do see, especially in the 1930s, a tremendous flowering of social science research in China. So this is, you know, sociologists, anthropologists, economists, statisticians, a whole range of people with very diverse disciplinary training, many, many of whom have been trained actually abroad in, uh, in the US, in the UK, in Germany, and so on, who are interested in, it's sort of the, the, the approach that, well, we, need, we want to help China, and things are in chaos. But in order to help, we need to understand what China is. So there's a tremendous amount of social science research driven a lot by statistical methods that takes place in the 30s. And these people are a part of a, you can think of, a much larger global community that is engaged in these kinds of questions. You know, this is a moment where there's actually a lot of ferment in both statistics and and economics as disciplines, conceptually, and also in terms of the kinds of research being done. So they have, in some ways, what what the communists have in 1949 on September 30th or October 1st, when it's officially declared the day after, uh, that they actually have a pool of resources that they can draw upon, even as their own experience is relatively limited, because the communists themselves have only controlled small pockets of land up to that point, uh, the Soviets in southern China, and then later on in sort of north, uh, northwestern uh, China, which became their base uh, in the 1930s in Yan'an. So their experience is mostly limited to the agricultural countryside, and they don't have much experience, uh, especially handling industrialized areas, understanding sort of what kinds of statistical data might be necessary for managing industry. So they have this pool of what you can think of as experts, but they choose to a large extent, not to drop on them. And this is where your question about ideology becomes important, because it's partly ideology, though they would couch it also in terms of that these are sort of serious theoretical disagreements about how we understand the world. And if we don't understand the world, if we don't see the world in the same way, then how can we rely upon you, you know, whose methods are going to be flawed? So there are some people who do, and this is at the, the expert level, that are perhaps asked to help. But for the large part, these people are are, are either just some of them, of course, all of them shek to Taiwan, but many remain and they are sidelined after 1949. The other thing that I should add, though, is that what I've been talking about is, is sort of at the expert level, but there's also, of course, a much larger number of people who are involved in day-to-day statistical work. You know, at the clerical level, at the at the junior level, and so on. And there, you actually do see some degree of continuity uh, because you need personnel, and you know, m- you know, there's only a small number of people who actually escape to Taiwan. So most people stay on, and many of these people are then involved in governance in the 1950s. They don't, of course, have the same kind of influence that someone at an at an elite level uh, who can decide policy, decide methodology, uh, you know, and frame statistical policy. So you see that distinction emerge very clearly.
0: You just referenced it, but I, w- I want to now dig into uh, what to me was, was one of the not the only one of the many fascinating elements of this book. And I should just say for for folks who who. Are now going to race out and buy the book. I mean, one of the really interesting things, which unfortunately we don't have much time to touch on today is uh, the interlinkage between uh, India and China in this, in this er- early period, which again, building on some of, you know, Julian Gewurz's book on, on reform in the 1980s, we see lots of areas where China highlights its pure indigenous capacity, where we see that there's some really interesting, fascinating interlinkages uh, between the PRC state and other countries. But I wanted to ask if you can ruminate a bit or or meditate a bit on these debates that are emerging in the 1950s. So on the one hand, we have the development of, again, in the more pure social science or natural science sense, the, the methodologies of statistical analysis. Complicating that process in the case of China's revolutionary state is the realm of ideology. And again, all states have ideologies. We, you know, in the United States, we pretend we don't. We use it as a pejorative, <laughs> but all states have ideologies. But depending on the sort of the guts of that ideology, it opens up possibilities. It constrains other possibilities. There was a unique hybrid ideology being created, built, established, innovated under the regime of Mao Zedong in, in the 1950s. So I wonder if you can talk through what is the state of ideological debate about statistical methodologies? You talked a, a few minutes ago about this more universalist understanding of statistics. And of course, part of the big project in China was across the board, pushing back against a universalist approach and saying, this is of our own, by our own bootstraps based on our own experience. And indeed, what's interesting is that's a narrative that persists till today. So I wonder if you can just give us a sense of ideology and statistics and how the two were either clashing or cooperating in the 1950s.
1: You're absolutely right to point to sort of this. This is a a, a longer sort of theme in in modern Chinese history, which is to sort of can can China be provide an alternative model to answer all kinds of questions, uh, you know, in the social, political, technological realm. And in the case of statistics in the 1950s, you do see a a quite emphatic answer, actually, uh, which which rejects uh, the universalist claims that a lot of other people have made about statistics at that time. One sort of contextual point to make uh, that I think is important before I dive into uh, looking at what the criticism was is that a lot of this is unfolding in a post-World War II moment where statistics becomes a proxy for good governance. So to be able to have uh, and demonstrate uh, a robust stat- statistical system, a modern statistical system, is a way to signal that, especially for post-colonial countries, for countries that are emerging out of, you know, say, imperial experiences, uh, to be able to demonstrate that they are actually modern nation states. So there's a driving impetus where there's a global recognition that statistics is one of these sort of undergirding tools for modern uh, modern governance. But again, what, what happens, of course, is that in spite of that sort of general consensus, what the very nature of statistics is there are massive differences over the chinese criticism and they're drawing upon soviet uh, discussions is to really say that well statistics is not a universal science because not all objects of analysis should be treated the same and so now what they're doing is they're going back to uh, what we could argue is a selective reading of marx where he essentially argues in different places that the laws that govern society, the laws that govern human beings and their relationships to each other and to to economic production are fundamentally different from the laws that govern the natural world or even the extraterrestrial world. So if the laws are different, then you should not be using the same methods to understand them. And here they focus in on the way in which probability and uncertainty are treated in the universal sort of definition of statistics, which is to say that uncertainty is seen as a feature of the world writ large. There's no distinction made between the social and the natural world. It just exists. And then statistical tools can be devised using probability theory to try and control some of this uncertainty, to get a handle on to what degree can we have confidence about some kind of future outcome or even some kind of present outcome that we want to assess. What uh, Chinese statisticians say is that, well, that's completely unacceptable because once you sort of make the point that, well, the natural world and the social world are different, You have to then recognize that in the social world, if you follow, again, Marxian theory and in particular, sort of Marxian teleological progress, then we know how history is going to unfold. We know how the future is going to unfold. We're going to go through various stages and we're going to, now we're sort of trying to build a socialist society. Eventually we'll get to communism. Before that we had capitalism. There's nothing uncertain about how this will unfold. What we do need to do is ascertain where we are along that process and then devise policy measures and so on. where Where is the place for thinking about uncertainty in this? Now, you know we can argue that this was a selective reading, and you can go back and you know uh, scholars uh, Marx himself will will find other instances. and in my in the book, I, in a footnote, I try and, I try and sort of provide counter examples where Marx himself is talking about how science is universal. But the point is that there is enough within Marx to allow for this kind of interpretation to proceed. And this allows them to then on very strong theoretical grounds on, on essentially it's an, it's an ontological argument, the nature of the world, we understand the nature of the world differently from the way in which you do, that allows them to say, then say that there is no place for uncertainty in the social world, and therefore there is no place for probability theory in the social world. And then this, you can imagine, once you, once you reject probability theory altogether, then this has implications for the kinds of methods you use, because statistics, especially the, the 20th century sort of evolution in statistics, is fundamentally undergirded by its embrace of probability theory.
0: Were other states... Uh, Other political systems that were drawing on Marx coming to the same ontological conclusion about probability, did we see this in the Soviet Union as well?
1: So we do see this in the Soviet Union quite strongly. There are debates that begin in the 1930s, and there's a meeting that's held, I think 1953, fall of 1953, where they bring together uh, several hundred scholars and sort of experts in different domains to, to basically adjudicate what is statistics. We need to define statistics. And the definition that emerges is that statistics is a social science. Its object is the social world. That's when it emerges. Though these, these discussions have been going on, but it's in fifty three that it sort of gets formalized within the Soviet uh, academic world, within the Soviet sort of world of science and technology. And that then has a huge impact. These debates are going on in China too, but that then has a huge impact in China in the 1950s. But there are other countries, either in the socialist bloc or countries that are high, heavily inspired by Marxism and, and socialism, broadly speaking. So sort of trying to build economic systems that are not outright on free, free market principles where you don't see this uh, happen, right? So there is a much more critical engagement. So I think this is a particular debate in the Soviet Union and then in China that speaks to a, a, a particular form of, of socialism in the 20th century, not a universal form at all.
0: In terms of the debate, just a thought that pops in my mind is, it's interesting how, although we we think that the purpose of a regime is to do whatever it can to stay in power, we see that sometimes it adopts ideologies or frameworks which take off the table tools that could do a better job of keeping it in power, right? So if if the early PRC was adopting a more up-to-date probabilistic set of statistical methodologies that would probably give it a better sort of seeing like a state capability, which would then redound to governance capacity, yet it has, because of ideological constraints, choosing a a suboptimal statistical methodology, or maybe this is my own normative sense here, but so is there this kind of tension between what would be good to hold the regime in power and ideology?
1: Yeah, so this is interesting, but it's I mean the the you can only make the point you're making post hoc
0: sure sure
1: right so, like all so in, my
0: opinion <laughs> so, <not.
1: laughs> so, so so in some ways in in 1951 52 53 all the way up to 1956 when they start encountering they don't dismiss the idea the sort of theoretical and ideological basis for for the, their definition of statistics but they do acknowledge that it's generating all kinds of problems sort of practical problems in the in the prosecution of statistical work throughout that period though there is a, actually a high degree of optimism and there is a certain kind of confidence that you know what we we are, we know how to do this and we're doing it the right way So I think post hoc, we can look back and see that, well, it was fundamentally limiting. And then there were people coming in from the outside, their interlocutors, including the Indian statisticians that they engage with starting in 1956, who tell them that you're essentially, they don't use these specific words, but in effect, what they're telling them is that you're limiting your toolkit. You're essentially, you know, you have a much wider toolkit or a larger toolkit, and you're choosing to focus only on a part of it. But that certainly wasn't the understanding then. There was a sense that what we are doing, uh, in uh, the Chinese statisticians and the policymakers, are actually producing a much more accurate and a much more honest and a much more, and let me, let me emphasize this, and a much more scientifically correct way to understand the world, right? so this is where it becomes interesting its ideology and the state but it's also notions of science and knowledge sort of coming up against each other and yes we can sort of see how post hoc this plays out and it leads to uh, all kinds of problems down the road but that doesn't i think in the in the early 50s it shouldn't it shouldn't affect sort of our knowledge of later sort of problems it shouldn't affect our appreciation of the way these people thought about these questions earlier in the 50s
0: fair enough i want to now bring to bear this alternative socialist approach to statistics and sort of grounded in a given event so you 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 talk a lot about the great leap forward here, and again for those of us who follow China from from the side, uh, we think of the great leap forward. It is inherently a statistical discussion, usually that we're engaged in, right? There's this raucous debate over one number: how many people died, right? This is the subject of a great deal of controversy, and and even in today, there's a left-right debate within China over this number. Of course, because if it's seventy million, then the Maoist project was failure top to bottom. If it was actually there was no mass starvation, and this was really a bad crop year, then, then you've revived or you've protected the Maoist project. So I wanted to ask you about bringing to bear now statistics and the Great Leap Forward. What happened there? Was this a breakdown of, of a statistical system? And there's this question of, you know, did, did, did Mao know and just not care, or did, did Mao not know? I wonder if you could ruminate a bit on what occurred there.
1: I think this is a, a great question, and you're, you're absolutely right that our... our Uh, sort of in the popular imagination, the one statistic that dominates all really is this how many people perished during the famine. And for me, what was interesting, though, was I began the project. And as I began finding material on on statistics and sort of shifted tack away from the census to, to looking at statistics was really to try and not Initially, to do the research without trying to explain the great leap forward, because that was in some ways from for a statistical history of the 1950s. That is the elephant in the room. Uh, So it feeds off of the discussion we just had. I wanted not to sort of freight my research with the knowledge that that is what is sort of one of the outcomes that is going to happen that will uh, will appear later in the decade. And so for me, therefore, I think what's interesting was to sort of track what kinds of methodological debates do we see through the 50s? The rejection of probabilistic methods basically means that there's, a, there's an overt reliance on the census, what you can call the census method, exhaustive enumeration. You just go out and count every instance of whatever you need to count. And in order to do this through the 1950s, the Chinese statistical apparatus essentially is a massive web, well, not a web, a tree. So with Beijing at the apex, and then you have this sort of massive expanding tree that goes down all the way to the village level where they're collecting regular reports, periodic reports uh, that then uh, funnel back and then you can provide national estimates and so on. But what's interesting is that if that's the dominant mode, you have this flirtation with probabilistic methods later in the in the 50s, you know, which involves the Indians also. Uh, but then there's another method which also is present through the 1950s, which has its roots actually in the late 1920s and in Mao Zedong himself and the kind of social research he did in the 1920s. When after the communists were were essentially purged from Shanghai, many of them retreated, retreated to the countryside. Mao was already in the countryside at that time, and he used this time to to research sort of social conditions and the possibilities of, of peasant uprisings and so on. And the his mode of analysis then became, over the years, also theorized as a mode of social science research. You know, if we were to sort of try and think of it in simple terms, it's an ethnographic mode of research where you go and intensely study a particular region by being present yourself, observing yourself, talking to people yourself. Your presence on the ground then really becomes the source of your authority to claim you know the reality of, of a particular place. Uh, so this had been a, a mode that was present to the 1950s, but it was really marginal. And what I discovered is that in the massive changes that take place in early 1958, March 1958 onwards, as the Greatly Forward becomes uh, a major campaign, is a, a recalibration of what, what is supposed to be the primary mode of doing statistical work, both both data collection and analysis. This is partly driven by uh, the greatly forward and uh, a strain of debate and discourse within China, which is fundamentally anti-expert. And this is undergirded by sort of a theoretical phrase known as the mass line, which is that people are the true repository of all wisdom. And the, the job of the, the cadre, the job of the, the political leader is really to go to the people, learn from the people, because the people's ideas, they are, they are the true repository of wisdom. But the people's ideas are sort of unformed and rough and so on. So what you need to do is get that wisdom, give it shape, harness it and devise policies. You apply those policies, see how they work. In order to understand how they work, you go back to the people and see, well, is this working? So there's an iterative process in the mass line. But the idea is that you all constantly go back to the people to get wisdom, to get knowledge, to get techniques. And that is fundamentally opposed in some ways to uh, whether it's the, the exhaustive mode of statistics or the probabilistic mode, which really is based on... A high degree of expertise, a high degree of abstraction, a high degree of the actual research are being somewhat removed from on the ground realities because you know the people in Beijing they're not traveling all over China all the time they're just collecting data and they see this massive data and then they process it so it's 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 sort of a real debate again and it's and it's again it's sort of a, a debate about how do you how do you ascertain social fact that had been present but then it really explodes in the late 1950s in 1958 in particular with 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 the Great Leap Forward and for me that was interesting because in looking at the literature english language literature on the great leap forward and i looked at uh, there's been actually an amazing amount of work in chinese also in the past maybe 10 15 years and i looked at a lot of that also uh, there is sort of a general consensus that, that oh statistical work collapsed you know and that in part contributed to the chaos of the great leap forward and then the eventual famine that that follows very shortly thereafter and what i found was it wasn't so much that it was it was destroyed but that that you see this massive transition. You see this transition from a mode that relied on this massive sort of system of collecting data exhaustively to this much more ethnographic atomized mode where essentially every county and then every commune became its own statistical unit. And now every commune would basically report data directly to Beijing. And this basically allowed for both uh, a reliance on much more ethnographic modes where you essentially could use a very tiny sample and extrapolate and claim that this sample represents a much larger reality. You can imagine, in some cases, it might actually do so, but the the possibilities of generating tremendous biases, upward and, I mean, positive and negative biases, is is very high. And the other thing it did is that it completely removed the possibility of being able to verify any of this. Because all of this data is emerging in atomized forms, so you have no... uh, in a national system, you have data emerging from different provinces, and you can compare and contrast, and you have a sense of how it's being collated. So there's some way in which to check at different stages what is the quality of the data that gets denied in the greatly forward too. So you see this massive transition, and 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 that I think in some ways contributes to this velocity of data. And there are other you know other factors that other scholars have pointed out. So I'm, I don't mean to say statistics helps us understand the Greatly Forward, but I think it helps us understand aspects of uh, the ways in which data could have been generated at such velocity and why the leadership had such a hard time assessing what they were receiving.
0: I want to um, quote from uh, page 258. You've got this really, this great uh, quote from Mao. It's 1961. It says, uh, we always demanded statistics on how much of what had been planted, how much was produced, how much fertilizer had been spread today, what would be done tomorrow. With all that reporting and calculating, it was impossible for statistics to keep up. That's how things go. You issue chaotic directives and I give a nonsense report and the result is exaggeration that makes no sense at all. I, I couldn't believe that was an actual quote. It's fantastic.
1: <laughs> it's from later on. It's not from so. It's not from say 1958 or 59 when this problem really explodes. It's in I think 61. You said right. So by 61 there's already a recognition, even if there's, there's not a public acknowledgement. Internally there's a very clear recognition that things have gone massively wrong.
0: Speaking of post hoc, was that you know Mao had a pretty good sense of humor and and could occasionally self-deprecate. Do we think that's his actu- accurate view of a systematic governance breakdown in statistical gathering? Especially his, um, we issue chaotic directives and I give a nonsense re- report. Or is this, you know, after, you know, after sixty one, he had been slapped down by by his brethren. Um, so is this just kind of a, a lame self flagellation, or was this his his uh, personal view of it?
1: I'm not a scholar of, of Mao himself. Sadly, Rod McFarquhar is not with us anymore. This would be the kind of question to, to, to ask him and say, well, what is going on in, in 1961 with Mao specifically? But I think part of it is certainly the fact that he has been chastised and he's, he's sort of trying to make sense of what has happened. But part of it also is just his deep rooted, I think, disdain for for expertise. You know, this, so this goes back to the his own sort of claims. So, you know, his famous dictum of no investigation, no right to speak. But the kind of investigation he had in mind was this much more ethnographic mode that I'm going to go personally. I'll talk to the people. I'll see what rumors are circulating. I'll passively observe protests and, and, and get a sense of what's going on. So I think there was probably a general level of discomfort with the kind of very technocratic mode that, that that socialist statistics actually represented. Uh, so it could be partly that also, that he's just, there's a, there's a disdain that lingers through where, where he just sees that all of this is not the best way to, to go anyway. So this again speaks to, I guess, the internal tensions that were there within sort of not just the Politburo, but this sort of upper level... Sort of leadership in in the in the CCP, because you had people on the one you know people like Mao, but then you also had people like Li Fuchun, people like uh, Zhou Enlai, people like Bo Yibo, who were on the more technocratic side, who were really well invested in finding technocratic solutions, who then worked with people like Xu Muxia, who was an economist and a statistician, who led the led the State Statistics Bureau in the nineteen fifties. So you see, you see these are internal debates that were going on, and and that quote I think might be both a representation of one side of that debate, but also frustration perhaps at at what has has transpired.
0: This is fascinating. We can go on for a long time. I wanted to make a fairly unadroit pivot to, to the modern era, but maybe I could ask a bridge question before we get to today, which just popped into my head, which is I think about the early 1980s under Dung, and I think about a period where there's a renewed emphasis on more small p pragmatic state building efforts, right? You see this with the revision of the Constitution in 1982. You see this with now more. Um, clear-ish division of, of labor between uh, general secretary and and premier. This is when we see the, you know, Dung gives this great speech in, in 1980, where August, August, uh, August 18th, he says, one of the things we need to start doing is clarifying responsibilities and delineations of power between government and and, and party. Um, I'm curious, does that also mark a, a hinge moment or a paradigm shift for more pragmatic universalist approaches to statistical analysis, or do we still see antecedents or legacies of of what we were just talking about um, linger over?
1: So I think the legacies persist. The legacies persist into the mid-80s, and they're probably most clearly discernible in, well, so the statistical apparatus is trying to reform itself, but it's begun to sort of well, initially reestablish and then reform itself from the early 1970s. So, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, you essentially see uh, a complete dismantling from what I can tell. Uh, And then it's starting in the early 1970s that you see provincial bureaus and then eventually the National Bureau get reestablished. But what's interesting is that you also from that point on start seeing an openness to international exchange. But it's the post-78 moment that makes this kind of international exchange politically possible. So I think the interest from within the statistical establishment for exchange, for participation, not necessarily in terms of only learning, but just to be be part of a community, right, to engage uh, in exchanges, learn from each other and so on, is there. But it, it becomes politically much more possible uh, after 1978 and after 1980, as you as you just pointed out. In the book, I mentioned a few. There are specific sort of figures who are important in the, the world of statistics in China who then make this very strong argument that that China needs to embrace a wider definition of statistics. But... but uh, the other part of your question is that it lingers. You know, the, the the antecedents do linger, uh, and um, even as the the statistical apparatus is trying to reform itself, it takes some time. One important market that doesn't come until several years later is actually the switch from a material products system of uh, accounting for national production to the UN system of national accounts, right? That switch doesn't happen until several years after 1978 or 1980. So you have a lingering of older methods, older approaches. Uh, But for me, the other interesting uh, marker of sort of a, a gradual transition is the fact that if you look at the way in which statistics is taught at the university level, you still see into the early 80s, into the mid 80s, a very clear distinction where if you're doing mathematical statistics, if you're engaged in studying probability, then you're most likely in a math department. You're not in a department of statistics. And if you're doing, you're, you know, you're working on population, you're working on collecting industrial data, agricultural data, sort of socialist statistics in that, in the way we just defined it uh, earlier, then you are in a department of statistics. So this distinction, you know, even at places like Fudan, at Tsinghua and so on, this distinction at Renda, at Renmin University, uh, this distinction exists until the mid 80s. I haven't looked closely at when the transition is completed. Um, but now of course you have departments of statistics that are that are very different from from what they might have been in the in the early 80s or earlier so so it's a very important moment but i see it more as a moment where there are interests and there are uh, desires to do certain kinds of things that politically become possible so it's more a question of what you know how the realm of political possibility changes in in 78 and
0: 1980 final question bringing this up to date and of course I, I when i was thinking of a a, a Contemporary question, you know, COVID-19 stands out, and but we're seeing the, the politicization of numbers is happening all over the place, including the United States, where there's extraordinary debates about to your, what should we be counting on this? You know, front page of The New York Times today is the, the, the new cases um, that are occurring. I go to other more conservative uh, pu- uh, publications and it's looking at, no, it's not new cases. It's looking at how many, you know, daily deaths. So it's interesting just to see the politic of statistics everywhere Uh, One of the areas that it's most apposite in in terms of contemporary debate in China is on GDP growth. And and my question is not for you to get in the heads of the National Bureau of Statistics and to unpack their methodologies. But I guess my question is, first of all, there's a widespread academic and popular and investment consensus that the numbers are fudged. And actually, I remember about four or five years ago when I was living in Beijing talking with a a statistician from the uh, NDRC and we were asking something about GDP growth and he stopped and said, the real GDP growth or the official GDP growth? It's just one of these moments where the you know the curtain opened and it was like, okay, you all know this is to some extent a, a, a farce or at least there's a high degree of politicization slathered all over this. So my question is a couple of things. When you think about this divergence between uh, what, for example, my old employer, the conference board, when they calculated GDP growth or the IMF calculates GDP growth for China and, and, and what the MBS comes out with, what, what do you see here? And again, tying this back to, to the antecedents. My, I guess my second question is, if everybody knows that there is a problem here, that, that we're not actually counting GDP as commonly understood or as commonly calculated in other, in, in, in other countries, why continue with the enterprise? And I guess this gets back to politics and, and, uh, and statistics. Um, Chinese regulators know it's not accurate. You know, remember in the um, at the WikiLeaks hacks of the State Department there was a cable from I think it was it was Li Keqiang at the time or yes yeah, Keqiang at the time had this kind of alternative index he said oh we don't pay attention to GDP we've got our own which is like coal consumption electricity so so they know it's not accurate they know we know it's not accurate why forge ahead and, and why not stop pivot and 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 make it count in a more in a more accurate sense
1: I can only sort of, sort of suggest the way in which I, I sort of approach these questions I can't sort of give a definitive, sort of sense uh, both for reasons of time and i think for reasons for the fact that i may i may not have a good answer in the in the end even after after sort of <laughs> spending a lot of time working through my thoughts but but one thing that i think the book helped me recognize or the research uh, that went into the book helped me recognize and then writing it helped me recognize is that uh, we tend to fixate on uh, as you rightly pointed out are that are the GDP numbers accurate or take any other index is it accurate and what are the politics behind it and, and what is going on and and in the book I mentioned this I, I understand these mostly as sort of post hoc uh, politically motivated kinds of sort of uh, um, questions in the sense that uh, you know all well it's, it doesn't it's not only at the at the level of states I mean, all data, as we know, and as you just pointed out with COVID, all data is always heavily politicized. We should completely disavow ourselves from this idea that there's some sort of pristine, sort of true data out there that we can, if only we were honest and objective, we'd get to it. Um, but what was interesting is that with a lot of the debates around GDP or other sort of very macro level indicators, the, the debate is at, at, at a very late stage of the Uh, generation of these numbers right so do they accord with certain kinds of political ambitions do they accord with a certain kind of say status that we enjoy in the world well maybe we are the fastest growing economy and suddenly you know well our internal numbers are showing that it's actually 2.2% lower uh, than what we want to project, and if we announce the lower number, we will no longer be the fastest growing economy. so there's a symbolic value to this that in it doesn't really affect the day to day lives of whether it's China or any other country in the world, but there's a symbolic value, and then that translates into all kinds of things in the in the international and political realm so that you know that these kinds of decisions then inform what I call post hoc manipulation, where, where we have the data, well, now let's. What do we? What do we want to say? You know, it's the classic joke about the lawyers, right? It's like this is the truth now. Tell me what you want to. What, what do you want me to argue, right? So that kind of thing. What was interesting, uh, and what I think is important to bear in mind is what I try and look at in the book, which is sort of initial. What I call initial assumptions about in in the case of 1950 statistics in China, the nature of the social world and its distinctiveness vis a vis the natural world, things like that, or other kinds of initial assumptions we make that can then fundamentally. Generate a set of choices that then have path dependencies that will gen- generate certain kinds of data that we can say are going to be biased in certain ways or have certain kinds of limitations. Uh, again, there can be upward biases or lower uh, you know, biases that are negative. And that I think is a sort of a question about process and a question about initial assumptions that remains hugely important. And it's, I think, very valuable again to look at sort of COVID data. We always fixate on you know okay how many people in uh, are infected in each country now what is uh, you know or how many people have died uh, or or are right that, that that index that became extremely popular for for a while in the middle till uh, till it was pointed out that it may not be the best uh, best index for uh, for understanding the spread um, but we don't look at sort of uh, the fact that well in many of these countries we are assuming all of this data is commensurable but we don't even look at the ways in which well how is this data being generated who's collecting it what are the assumptions being made at the point of collection Uh, that then might influence the ways in which the final numbers look. And that has nothing to do with manipulation at the end. It's about uh, a much sort of more deep-rooted process that generates certain kinds of biases, and I think we need to be attentive, therefore, to both of these these problems. Uh, and and this is true in the case of of, of Chinese GDP also. Which incidentally, uh, there is I know there is sort of a general consensus, but I've been you know if you go and read someone like Karsten Holtz, who's done extensive work on the quality of GDP data in China, his conclusion, my sense, is that it's it's not as bad as we think it is. There is actually a lot of internal coherence that would suggest that they are not fudging it to the extent that we think they are. So it, it, in some ways, it leads to the larger question that you asked, which is like, what good is GDP to begin with? That's a more, I think, a global question we need to have, a, a question at the level of the IMF and the World Bank and uh, and the uh, you know AIIB that's been set up and so on. Do we want to really use that metric to really, because it does inform so much of policy, so much of international politics at this point, do we really want to rely on this? And there's so much good scholarship now on GDP that says that it's, I mean, to a large extent, it's bunk.
0: And maybe, you know, this is a nice place to wrap up the discussion because without sounding like relativists, it shows that this, it is a political choice about what to count. And it's interesting hearing you talk right now, just thinking about how many, for myself, unexplored assumptions there are about the rightness of GDP as this outsized measure of progress. When, of course, as the great French economist of the 19th century, Frédéric Bastiat, wrote in his great essay, The Broken Windows Fallacy, if you and I went out and got bats and smashed all the windshields up and down my street and folks went to the Glazer to get them fixed, we would be contributing to GDP growth. Or if we went out and, and used man hours to dig holes in my backyard, that's, of course, quite simplistic. But, but nonetheless, I think it's interesting that this methodological or epistemological question of what are we counting and for what value, and is this the right measure? Or is this the right thing to count? It's easy when we think about rainfall and crops. It gets harder when we think about uh, measures of value and progress, which, of course, you know, we're we're, we're wrestling with. And, and so I think these are, are really interesting questions. I, 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 I want to end by saying it's a fascinating discussion. What I, I love is, yes, this is a question about statistics, but really, as you're saying, you're asking a, a much larger set of questions. For, I think, anyone who is thinking about state capacity, state governance, historical legacies, ideological legacies. We hear this whole thing of Xi Jinping bringing back Mao, whether or not you agree with that or not. I think what we're realizing in this current epoch is that history did not die in September, 1976, when Mao passed and modernity did not come full swing uh, with the with the rise of Mao, that we're still seeing a complex legacy. And finally, the age old adage that, that at $45, a, a book really is the most fundamental bargain a human being can ever get, because for for less than fifty bucks, it can change the way certainly that that I think about some of this early uh, state building uh, and, and this really fascinating lens to look at this tension or the interplay of of ideology and, and governance and how they they spin off each other, clash into each other. So this is a, a fantastic book that I, I recommend for folks who are just trying to think through today's China and, and where it's going. So I want to thank you for for this. Um, thank you for for spending time and look forward to seeing you in, in person when Normalcy returns in 2028.
1: Yeah, Well, thank you so much, Jir. It was really fun talking about the book. And yes, let's hope that an in-person meeting might be possible sooner than you said. <laughs>